Hello and welcome to ITC Entertain the World podcast season two. We're back after a short break and with me today Jazz Wiseman is as per usual my great co-hosts in podcasting Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Hi guys how you doing? Fine Hi, thank Rodney. you. Hi Jazz doing well. Today we are going to be looking at the one hour episodes of Danger Man and we've already discussed the half hour series in a podcast so if you're unfamiliar with that podcast perhaps you could give it a listen but in this one we're talking about the one hour series i'm not going to say too much about danger man itself as a series here only that it's returned after four years and it's gone from 25 minutes to 50 minutes or half an hour to an hour it still has patrick mcgoon in the lead role of john drake it's produced by ada young and sydney cole and still created by Ralph Smart. we really need to start with why did danger man come back and more importantly the gap between the first series where it's filmed in 1959-1960 broadcast 1960 into 61 and when danger man the one hours come back in 1964 now that four years in the social and tv landscape saw a huge huge change if we consider that the Danger Man 25 minute series is kind of like the daddy of all spy drama, you know, it was predating Bond by a couple of years. It had gadgets and girls and all these things that sort of eventually the spy craze kind of latched onto. Those four years, socially, we had the election of John F. Kennedy and then the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We had the start of the Beatles and Beatlemania. We had modern rockers. We had this Yuri Gagarin being the first man in space, start of the space race. We had Berlin Wall going up in 1961. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had Harold Wilson delivering a, a white heat speech, which is quite famous, and then eventually becoming prime minister. And television and film, we obviously had The Saint and The Avengers and James Bond, but we also had the cultural thing of Top of the Pops, and that was the week that was. We had the sort of birth of the teenager or the development of the teenager. A huge, huge change in the social and TV landscape. And I think these are points that we need to just make a little nod to before we really get into the analysis of the series. One other thing, significant event, which is quite a touchstone dramatically for Danger Man here as we come back, is the Profumo affair. 
and that beginning of the breakdown of trust in politicians. There's all the British spy scandals, aren't there? There are quite a few of them. There's also Doctor Who I might throw in there as well, which has started. So television was beginning to offer a lot more. I think 1964 sees 13 million TV sets in Britain. So almost every household now has a TV. So it's very much a touchstone of domestic entertainment. And people were beginning to stay in to watch TV shows rather than go out to the cinema. Yeah, and probably rush home from the pub on a Friday night to see an episode of their favourite series that might be broadcast just before, you know, last orders or closing time. We've heard those stories before. Is it worth saying, Jazz, that there is obviously a flip side to this, which is that with Danger Man coming back in 1964, back in 1960, there's no expectation for it. People wouldn't have known who Patrick McGowan was on the whole. And obviously Danger Man was was very much a new type of series. With it coming back on the back of a couple of Bond films, as you've mentioned, The Saint, The Avengers, I think there's a lot of pressure and expectation on both McGowan and the show itself in its new format. It couldn't come back the same. It would have to develop. It does develop. The new format allows much more breathing time, much more time to be cinematic and standards would have to change. You couldn't see somebody like McGowan coming back to the old format. I suspect he would have had a little more artistic control and they would be looking at the contemporary world in terms of the bonds and seeing what they could come up with. That's interesting, that point there you make about artistic control and cinematic as well. We do need to remember that those 25-minute episodes, Patrick did manage to direct one and had quite a lot of input into the character. And also, like we've discussed in our previous podcast, just how beautifully shot and lit those 25-minute episodes were. I'm just sort of saying, we're, although it's he's come back and it's changed, I wouldn't want to dismiss what went before because I think in terms of quality, that 25-minute series is fantastic in yeah. writing, acting, lighting, filming, everything. Yeah, it, it, the 25 minutes are a masterclass in concise storytelling and it is storytelling as we develop into the 50 minutes now. It does, as I said a moment ago, it does give us a, a chance to become filmic. When you look at the quality of them, they are mini-films. Patrick McGowan comes back and he'd been away and he'd done a few things. He'd been in All Night Long, which is a film where he was a jazz drummer. He'd been in The Queer Fellow. He'd done a couple of movies for Disney, Dr. Sin, where he was the scarecrow. He'd gone off and done some other bits and pieces, but I think this was the right time for him to return. He'd done some worthy stuff, like The Queer Fellow. He'd done some stuff he clearly thought wasn't worthy of him. When he was in his rank contract, he cited family concerns for coming out of that contract. When he came out of his Disney, he did say he'd been terribly homesick in Hollywood. He'd missed his family. And let's be perfectly frank here, that the Disney stuff he did turned up as Disney TV rather than movies. So that must have been disappointing. There was an option for a third film, which never came off. It was a, a mixed time for both McGowan and ITC. ITC had been putting out shows like Man of the World and the sales revenue hadn't been brilliant. And, and they were at a point where they were technically making a loss on some of their stuff. 
So I, ITC needed something to come back with, to hit America with, because that obviously that was always Lou's ambition. Patrick had had a small film career. And if we're honest, it hadn't really set the world on fire. It was to the benefit of everyone that sort of Ralph Smart popped up and said he thought he could reconfigure Danger Man. I think also this is the perfect part for him. And clearly he saw with the hour-long format that there was scope to further develop. It wasn't sort of coming back and treading water. And this is now Danger Man tackling swinging 60s because for me 1964 is very much the beginning of London swinging there's no swinging in 1959-60 the different context offers lots of myriad things for danger man to deal with and I was going to add to that point there you made about Lou and ITC I think Lou really did need Patrick back because of those sort of shows that have been made in that period between 60 and 64 probably only the saint was really setting the world alight in terms of global sales as you mentioned there man of the world and sentimental agent although they're fun series you know they weren't big hitters and tend to be forgotten here in england let alone in places like the states or australia or france so i think yeah. lou really needed patrick to come back and as you say it was a, a perfect opportunity really to reignite danger man and sell it to the world again especially as you say the united states so with the series coming back the changes are something that we should primarily discuss I've mentioned there it went from 25 minutes to 50 minutes, or if you're in a viewing slot, half an hour to one hour. But there are also some other changes that we should note here. That Drake himself no longer works for NATO, as he did in most of the episodes in the 25-minute series. He's now working for a British government department, M9, which is obviously based on British Secret Service. The episode length there, that extension, now allows for smaller little subplots to be brought in. Smudge, you mentioned there how great the half an hour episodes are for concise storytelling. Well, in this, it allows little paths to be weaved that are going off down little tangents, which is, is lovely. Also, the development of Drake as a character, he seems to go undercover a lot more in the one hour episodes than he does in the half hour episodes that's not to say that he doesn't go undercover in the half hour episodes but we've also got these wonderful when i say wonderful it's the music primarily that is wonderful with the new titles and music there's no real titles as such there's only that bit where on the first few episodes where it's just that still photograph of his face that then revolves into that danger man wheel before he they'd obviously had time to film him walking towards the camera a bit like this i suppose it's a pastiche in a way of a bond gun barrel shot isn't it in a way mm-hmm. or a homage to it or a sort of nod to it but the music i think the high wire theme really is probably the best itc theme from the 1960s it's really evocative brilliantly played on that harpsichord really evocative the other thing as well, how the reformatting suited the American market and, you know, we get it branded in America as secret agent with a new title sequence and a new title song. And obviously it was sold into a network. I think High Wire, one of the many things I love about that score is that it's almost at odds with what we're going to be seeing. It's beautifully light. And yet, obviously, the content 
from the very word go with the first episode that was broadcast. It's often really dark. And I think that provides a lovely contrast. Highwire is a brilliant hook, like you say, it's recognisable now. If you're out somewhere else in the house, if you're in the kitchen, it would be the tune that would bring you into the television. It, it really is a hook. With Secret Agent, I actually quite like the graphics. I certainly like the images of, for example, there's that huge sort of eyeball with, or pupil with McGowan's face on it, etc. I like those. As for the actual song itself, sung by Johnny Rivers, it's a perfectly catchy tune and it was a big hit in the States. I think it reached number three. But if you actually listen to the lyrics, it's really Bond. It doesn't really refer to Drake at all. And so I'm sure on one level, their idea with Secret Agent Men was that it would fit in with the interest in 007. And the words were changed as well, weren't they? I think in the chorus, mm -hmm. it was danger man. And then they made it secret agent man, which is a bit bizarre, but who knows what goes on back in those days, hey? That sort of thing. But I presume that the popularity of that single must have had a knock-on effect for viewing figures in the States. I'm guessing people heard it and thought, hmm, I rather like that, must watch the show. You'd get it either way. You'd get people watching the show going out to buy the record or you'd get people when the record hit the top 20 or whatever. People would, you know, great music. I've got to look out the show, yes. Drake now works for M9, which is clearly the British Secret Service and department of it. And he's got a couple of really ruthless bosses that we see, although those bosses sort of switch a bit. They're really heartless bastards and they really don't give a monkey's about him, to be honest. All the sort of dirty work that's involved with him doing or people he or they send out to deal with tricky situations that Drake might be involved in himself. Yeah, this is clearly part of the development that the character has matured. I mean, has he grown weary of it? Was it as the conflict grown within him as time? has progressed because we do see him on, on num more than one occasion we see him at odds with those bosses because he has to sort of sublimate himself to the job so many times but not every time does he sort of hide this that's a fascinating aspect that the 50 minutes allows us and it also gives us a more consistent character in terms of vocal delivery because he's, he's lost his mid-atlantic accent that very first episode in the hour-long run, and it's with Admiral Hobbs rather than the Brigadier. And he's being humiliated and put down from the word go. I mean, the very first exchange, you know, Drake says, I sometimes think you overestimate my capabilities, sir. And the Admiral answers, you need have no fear of that, Drake. That's something that carries on. Again, I think one of the genius things about the way they went about making Danger Man is that if you put Hobbs and the Brigadier together, they only appear in nine of the 45 black and white hour-long episodes. So only in one in every five. So you don't get to the point where you think, oh, every episode's going to begin with a mini pulling up outside world travel. It'll be Hobbs or it'll be Gorton, etc. I love the fact that they keep refreshing the formula. He's antagonistic with Gordon, but when it comes to Hobbes, it's almost daggers drawn at points. And also there, like you say, I don't think those meetings with the bosses do make an impression with you that you probably think it's more than, like you say, one in five episodes. There are many occasions where we get no briefing and it gives us 
a wonderful little bit of ambiguity about Drake because we now see this more developed character, slightly more rebellious character. When you start a mission and there's no briefing, there's that little bit of ambiguity and you can wonder about his motives and is it all mission or is part of it personally? It's a nice little bit of chop and change. And to sort of develop that point, quite a few of the missions are started by him. In terms of that ITC press guide, obviously, they tend to centre on the things that have changed rather than the continuity. It does point out it's still all about danger, but they talk a lot about Drake's character having matured. They talk about the fact he's far more open to romance. Now, I would question that a little bit. I mean, yes, he's very flirtatious undercover. But we don't get anything more than, I think, a peck on the cheek with Jane Merrow's character in one of the episodes is really about as close as we get to romance. I wonder whether part of the thinking behind that press guide was on the back of The Saint, on a Blackman, the opening Bond films, did they feel under pressure to make out that Drake was slightly more open to romance now? Hmm. I would go against you on that. I think the character does open up a little more. And it's not just a question of him walking into a bar, seeing a gorgeous girl and saying, you know, come to bed, darling. It's quite understated. There's things like the final scene in No Marks for Civility. I read that as a frisson between him and Helen. We also learn about Drake's past, his relationship in Fair Exchange with the Lita Goldoni character. In George Foster, the Adrienne Corrie character, Pauline, she implies that there was something going on between them. So we, we may not get it overtly, but we clearly see that he's human. Yeah. I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And I do think he shows more emotional maturity. The one phrase that always haunts me when I think back to that press book is they make the comment, the impact of his television series was so great he could never escape the image he'd created for himself on the TV screen. Now, I've always found that a little bit odd. I wouldn't have thought McGowan would have appreciated that comment. Obviously, he didn't sign up to celebrity. He kept his private life private. He would have probably dismissed anything like that as errant nonsense. And I suppose, in a way, when he comes back to it and it starts rolling, he is going to be remembered for doing the series a number of years previous, isn't he? When it comes back, the Danger Man's announced and he's returning to the role, people will say, oh, yeah, I remember that show. You know, he was great in that. I don't know if he was typecast by that role, but I think that it, it had made it quite an impression and people were very, they were fond of it and they remembered him for it. I tend to see the long-running roles as a positive. I mean, Roger Moore clearly got bored with The Saint by the end, but without playing Simon Templar, we'd have never had Roger Moore as 007. Without John Drake, there wouldn't have been The Prisoner. Rather than seeing them as being sort of trapped inside these characters, I think these are characters that were perfectly made for those actors, and those actors ended up co-creating them, didn't they? It made Patrick's name the half-hour danger man because you've got that wide exposure that only television gives you. The beauty of those undercover roles means that every week he's actually playing different parts. One week he might be a school teacher who's had a mental breakdown. The following week he might be a journalist or he's an artist in one of them. That must have added a real free self excitement and certainly he comments on that in the press guide. 
he says it's a bit like repertory each week i get to play a different part and i don't think that can be underestimated The episodes are, as a run here, we're talking about 22 episodes, which I'll list in the podcast description. So for those people who are wondering what the episodes are, you'll be able to see them all and read the list of what we're doing. We have to split them because there are so many episodes to concentrate on Danger Man as a whole series. We'd be here for probably an eight hour podcast. But anyway, we're doing 22 episodes which you'll see in the comments. But we're going to start with Yesterday's Enemies, which as a starting episode for a comeback for this series, or the first episode of an hour-long series, this is a real hard-hitting episode. There's no light touch. We're going to reintroduce Drake here, and it's all going to be nice and easy. It's really nitty-gritty and bang and hard. Wonderfully directed by Charles Crichton. Fantastically written by Donald Johnson. Great cast, Harold Marion Crawford, who had come back in a later episode we're talking about later, Anton Rogers, Patricia Driscoll, Aubrey Morris. This is really about, I suppose he was an ex-spy, starting to run his own little spy ring out in Beirut, and Drake has to go and investigate it. And the consequences for this chap who set up this spy ring, the way it plays out is pretty eye-opening when you think this is coming back and this is the first episode of 64 it's like as i said it's hard hitting and you realize then that just watching this one episode this is not going to be a sort of bond take on the spy career this is the dirty world the real nitty-gritty of what goes on in the world of a spy and i should point out here that drake never actually refers to himself as a spy he always refers to himself as an agent this really is starting with a bang. This is John Drake in the world of Le Carre, a world where mm. lives mean very little. There's very little value. There's a lot of cynicism. It's quite stark when you compare it, perhaps, to the tail end of the half-hour shows. One of the things, coming back to them, I've really enjoyed them and examining them properly. You, you see there is so much detail. There's character detail, the detail in the writing, the detail in the plotting. There's beautiful detail in the cinematography. There's detail in the sets. It is such a rich mix. There is so much to see. To, to really sort of strip out a single episode, you could do a, an hour's podcast on a single ep. The big thing about this is Howard Marion Crawford. What an amazing actor. And how he works with McGowan. My perception of him up to now has been a sort of mid-range 40s, 50s, 60s character actor, one of those bedrock guys that you can always depend on. But you see in his Danger Man appearances really how good an actor he is. And I think one of the differences between his character here and the one that we'll see in No Mark's uh, Civility is that in the latter episode, even in that teaser, we see how demonic he is. Mm. Whereas here he comes over early on as he's sort of drunk at a party and he seems sort of quite a, a convivial character. And it's only as the episode develops, we really see how dark and amoral he is. And I think that scene where he's about to torture Drake with his henchmen, and they're going to be burning him with cigarettes. 
it's an incredibly dark moment. But again, I think one of the things that makes the episode brilliant is it's the dark humour that's in there. I mean, you mentioned the cast, Jazz. I don't think you mentioned Joan Hickson. You've got Joan Hickson as this sort of racist expat. It's her coming back from this disastrous Amdram evening in the expat community yeah. that saves Drake at that moment. It's a moment in the episode where the drama doesn't go away, and yet you've got this sort of wonderful, almost sort of gallows humour as Drake is relieved. And it's moments like that that help make the episode brilliant. You know, Anton Rogers' character is an excellent character in it as well. And the chemistry between him and um, McGowan, I think, works brilliantly. And even in the tiny roles, Iva Salter, who arrives near the end as a sort of M9 hitman. You've only got to look at his face. He's got evil perspiring out of him. And yet he's legitimate. He's part of the cogs of British intelligence, isn't he? The thing that intrigues me about the episode is when you read all the pre-publicity for the new series and Patrick saying about how he wouldn't like to appear in anything, he wouldn't have his daughters watch, he's not into sex theme and the violence theme. When you look at it, the teaser starts with a violent machine gunning. And as you say, the torture scene is particularly strong for television at this time. That's a really, really nasty little build-up. And it, it is quite a sort of huge cathartic relief when Joan Hickson comes back in because the audience is on the edge of their seats. What's going to happen to Danger Man? We've never seen him this vulnerable before. And then finally, you've got that Bondian set up with the hitman. The fact that all of that has been arranged behind Drake's back. He doesn't know what's going on. There's that coldness and that callousness. It's a very hard thing, and it doesn't sit with Patrick's opinion of not wanting to do anything his kids couldn't watch. Yeah, Hobbs there, he's so hard-nosed and cold and calculating in this. I was just going to say that the Harold Marion Crawford character, Archer, I believe is loosely based on Kim Philby's time in Beirut, which was obviously, again, writers picking up on the real world of espionage, which is something that we haven't really mentioned. But obviously, as we develop in what we're talking about here, um, we might throw in a few things here where sort of real life events are what the writers used to base the crux of the idea around. We've got the maintenance, unfortunately, of the fake ethnicity, the Anton Rogers character is clearly Anton Rogers in dark makeup. But on the positive side of things, the writers aren't afraid to give the ethnic characters speeches in their native language. And that, to me, is a great touch because when Atala's doing his first interview of the suspect with Drake in the room, the viewer and Drake are, all, are in the same position. We don't know what on earth he's saying. He could be a co-conspirator, for all we know. And that use of, of native tongue is a nice little development. And it's also sort of part of that anti-British colonial stuff mm. because Joan Hickson's character is one of many in the hour-long Danger Man where you've got someone who's been living in a foreign country for years and hasn't bothered learning any of the language. I mean, mm, she yeah. says, I've been 20 years in Beirut and not one word of Arabic do I speak. And she's proud of the fact. You get the feeling as we run through these that the writers didn't really like the colonial aspects of the empire. Yeah, definitely. But there is a wonderful sort of bookend to that episode. In, the, in quite a few of them, we get Drake back at M9 at the end, and it fits in nicely with the sort of opening as well. And at the end of this one, um, Hobbes says to him, you're forgetting yourself because Drake's lost his temper. 
and Drake says, I wish I could forget. I think that becomes a running light motif in the show, that Drake actually at times, he'd like to forget these missions. He'd like to not go on a lot of them because at the end they just leave him feeling spiritually empty and disgusted. I was going to add to that. I thought the portrayal of Joe Dutton by Maureen Connell is fantastic in this episode. It's a really strong part for a a woman to play. And we have to remember that she is running the M9 office out in Beirut. And that's a a really important role for an agent spy at the time. And the fact that it's, it's a woman running it, I really like that, that the writers have given that opportunity to her. And I thought she played that part really well. And she played against McGowan really well. And there was a little bit of flirtation there that I thought that was, we mentioned about this thing about did Drake be more receptive to women? I think he was towards her, particularly in this episode. And I think she really does deserve that little mention, to be fair. And this is what we see as we move on in the episodes. We see some damn good, strong female characters. The writers aren't afraid to give the women characters that strength. And a shout out to how staying in black and white adds to the real noirish edge to this series, because that Archer Courtyard, when Drake is sort of breaking back in later on, and one of the henchmen lights a cigarette, and we see Mm. his face lit up for a split second. And then it's darkness again. And I mention this partly because I, I know that McGowan was frustrated when the saint went into colour and Danger Man stayed in black and white. But boy, is this a series that suits black and white, isn't it? This guy literally lives in a shadowy world. So what better way to do it than black and white? There's a lovely little thing as well I like about this episode. If you're really observant, you'll see a sign for Chufix shop. And of course, that shows that there's another episode that we'll come on to in a little while called Fish on the Hook, which is where Chuflick's shop is. And that's also in Beirut. So I like those little kind of tiny pieces of continuity that if you're eagle-eyed, you can watch them. Whatever happened to George Foster? I mean, what a superb episode. I mean, we've got a teaser, which literally does tease us because we think we're going to be off in some exotic location on the other side of the world. And that leads to an episode which is completely sort of British-based. We've got probably one of the greatest villains in ITC history, I reckon, in Lord Ammonford, mm-hmm. brilliantly played by Bernard Lee. And this is probably the episode that puts Drake out to dry like no other episode, because this is an episode where eventually British intelligence is going to deny his very existence. Never Mm -hmm. mind just pulling the plugs on him. I think it's a superbly structured story by David Stone. We've got sort of the three set scenes between McGowan and Bernard Lee, which each crackle with tension beautiful dialogue we've got this fantastic set for lord ammonford's apartment when drake the first time gets out the lift and he's looking at this maze of doors in the corridor and he asks which one's lord ammonford's and of course they all are you know he's even got a great big fountain in his (laughs) corridor as you say david stone such a brilliant writer absolutely wonderful with dialogue like when Ammonford Bernard Lee is first talking to Drake, he said, uh, you're a cynic, Mr. Drake. 
we should get along. And then as the conversation develops, he says, it's always nice to meet an intelligent civil servant, which is Ammonford to me, damning John Drake with faint praise, just as Drake leaves. He has acknowledged Drake's qualities and assuredness. Just as he sort of lets him out the door, he just says quietly to himself, Bernard Lee, what a pity. A tiny phrase, perfectly delivered, dripping with menace, brilliantly done. Yeah, that's an ultimate put down as well, though, isn't it? When he calls him the civil servant. This really is Drake versus the British establishment in like no other episode, because not only is he going up against Lord Ammonford, he's also going up against his employers and the people that put him in this role and maintain his role. And they're quite happy to, if they needed to, they would have knocked Drake off and he would have been forgotten. This is an episode that we all agree is fantastic. But it's one of those episodes that never, ever really gets mentioned when people talk about Danger Man as a series. We always hear about Colony Free or No Marks of Civility, um, which is great, or Ubiquitous Mr. Lovegrove, or maybe Don't Nail Him Yet. No one ever seems to mention this. It's like a forgotten classic that is actually, it's the one that you should all see because it's so good. And okay, it's not like, wham bam action he's not driving a fast car he's not doing this that and the other in terms of getting people es- escaping out of building roofs and things like that this is really is like the darkest thing you'll see in terms of what this establishment represents and what drake has to encounter and you kind of feel that all the way through that drake is not going to get this guy he really wants to get him but he's not going to succeed and it's it's that balance where it's always on a knife edge. Is he going to be outdone here that I really like about this? And a point we should mention in this, there's great parts for the two women in this, particularly Adrienne Corrie, who is a fabulous actress who plays the part of the newspaper. She's an editor. And as Smudge said earlier, there's a hint of a previous relationship going on here. Wonderfully cast brilliantly acted and has a bit of a fight with Jill Medford who plays Serthia who is a real snake in the grass you wouldn't trust her with your granny but also we should point out as well in here Drake says be seeing you and he says this on a number of occasions so all those people who are obsessed with the prisoner about where they say oh Drake says be seeing you he was saying it in Danger Man before It's beautifully directed, this episode as well. Quite early on, there's an intruder in Drake's Muse house and the camera pans and basically we're getting Drake looking. He's on surveillance now. He's alert. He's looking for where the intruder is. And the intruder then appears from the sort of cupboard door and everyone sees him apart from Drake. I think he slams the intruder's hand in the door and he's got a very distinctive ring on him. And all those little details, which, of course, are going to come back later on. The thing is, Drake really is under attack on all sides here. You've mentioned the Jill Melford character, Serthia. She's a brilliant character. She's wonderfully sort of dismissive of Drake and icy with him. In one of their earliest encounters, they're talking and Drake says something like, you won't forget, and her cold riposte is... No, but you might have to. And there's that, that wonderful thing where he gets back to his flat on the second occasion, I think it is, and she's there stretched out on the sofa. He walks in, he says, oh, with your connections, you could probably get me arrested for breaking into my own house. 
and there's the truth there because Drake has gone rogue. His bosses are against him. Ammonford is against him. And this Serthia is basically Ammonford's right-hand woman. And you really get the feeling, you know, she is more than just that snake in the grass. If the opportunity arose, she would happily see Drake dispatched. There's that, also that lovely little sequence where Drake arrives at the airport only to find his reservation cancelled. And then Serthia sort of breezes in, goes right through the front of the queue and just gets in. And then she's straight on the plane. And it turns out the airline is, the chairman is Lord Ammonford. The whole thing centres around corruption. It absolutely drips it up. There's the first two meetings when Drake meets Ammonford. On those occasions, Ammonford has quite deliberately got his back towards Drake. I call that the ignorance of power, and that is what Hammondford is playing with. But in terms of the production, when the story develops, when he goes back to Pauline to research Hammondford, he's actually quite hot-tempered. He does sort of lose control a little bit because he's been frustrated at the airport. And then we go into that little sequence where he's doing all his background research. It's like butcher, baker, candlestick maker that he visits to talk about Hammondford. And for each of those tiny scenes... You get a beautifully detailed little set. And this is what the production values are all about on Danger Man. Quality all the way. And Pauline describes them as salons a lot. She says, you know, you're out of date. You're the sort of knight errant who thinks that there should be sort of rules and there aren't. Mm. But I mean, I think that's an, it's a perfect example of an episode where it makes complete sense that we don't see his boss. Because Ammonford goes higher. He says he knows the boss's boss. And that's the one who Drake goes to visit. So again, it's an example of how they keep refreshing the whole thing. And, and that's a conversation that begins with Sherry. It's all meant to be very civilised, but there's a barbed warning at the end, isn't there? That lack of having the boss appear, it lends it such an ambiguity because we don't know what Drake is doing in San Marco in the first place. As the plot unfolds, we see that Drake's personal feelings come into this. Because at the end, he claims the victory against Ammonford. He claims it for the little people of San Marcos. Another standout episode I'd like to talk about is No Marks for Civility, which sees the return of, as an actor as Harold Marion Crawford, who in this is wonderfully evil. This was written by Ralph Smart and directed again by Don Chaffee, who seems to be directing a lot of these early episodes. This is a real standout episode. This is another five-star episode for me. There are wonderful sequences, isn't it? Particularly the scene where Drake is so furious with him that he is, I should point out, he's a butler. And he crunches this whiskey glass in his hand and he shatters it from sheer anger and frustration. That scene alone is worth the whole episode for me. Brilliantly cast as well. We've got Francesca Annis in it, Susan Farmer, Peter Madden returning as Hobbs. 
to set up Drake with his assignment and he even has to practice and show his butlering skills to Hobbes. Absolutely brilliant. It's a complete sublimation for Drake. Howard Marion Crawford is wonderful in it. He goes toe-to-toe with McGowan. I love the fact that the physicality of it, the Benares character, they've made him look like the old Blood and Thunder British film star Todd Slaughter. He really does look like him. And you spend the whole of the episode waiting for his come down. But that thing you mentioned where we've got Drake retraining as a butler, they do the scene at the house and, and you don't see the person. There's somebody preparing crepes as it and you see all the meticulous detail and the immaculate cuffs. We pull back and it's Drake. And then when he's told he can relax and sit down and talk about the mission, I love the fact that instead of taking the proffered wine, he just goes along and walks away with the whiskey decanter and helps himself to a whiskey. That is Drake being Drake. Yeah, all right, I'm playing this role for you, but I'm still me. I love the fact also that the civility works on two levels because Hobbes wants him to be more servile. M9 wants him to be more servile. And Hobbes even sort of tells him that. He sort of says that you'll find this a salutary exercise. It's almost as if the mission isn't just to deal with Benares. The mission is also to put the great big M9 thumb down on Drake and tell him this is your place. He and Hobbes, they really cannot see eye to eye at times. And you get the impression at some points that Drake would happily walk out when he's being confronted by Hobbes. We get some lovely production values here. The Rome house where Drake has to go and but for Benares, that is one of a handful of really nicely executed stage sets which is meant to represent an exterior. And it really does look like it. You get another one in Have a Glass of Wine. It just strikes you on the quality note. I think it's also an interesting episode in terms of Drake and class, because this is a theme that runs throughout the series. And Mm. Benares feels that he can buy culture and class, and he has none at all. He walks into the villa. He says, oh, let's see what $1,600 a week gets me. And yet here we have Drake, who is classless. We don't know what Drake's background is. He could have gone to Eton. He could have gone to the local school. We don't find out. And yet he is as cultured a character as you can get. He knows which wines go well with what local produces in season, et cetera, et cetera. He's impeccable. There are so many lovely little elements. Drake is undercover as a butler but he's still got his sort of wonderful wine cellar headquarters with cctv cigars wine on tap he's having a great time some of the time butler's perks no end there but Benares, like you say he's not only a blackmailer and a wife beater he's also a kidnapper he's also someone who will happily pay for someone else to be murdered He's prepared to kidnap his wife's best friend, daughter, to achieve his ultimate aim. Heaven knows what he'd have been willing to do to Francesca Annis's character to get mm. his way. And he's beaten his young wife. And yet she says that she's going to miss him. I yeah, do but, have a little bit of a problem. With yeah, but I do mm. think part of that is that she's young and she's naive. She sees herself as a nothing, and this is the final frisson with her and Drake. He tells her she's not a nothing, and and they depart on personal terms. And it is quite unusual for Drake to address a female character so informally.
Another very good episode is The Mirror's New with Donald Houston, Wanda Ventham, Nicola Padgett, even Bill Nye's in this. Directed by Michael Truman and written by Philip Broadley, who I think wrote some wonderful Danger Man episodes and often gets sort of overlooked or easily criticised. It was set in Paris, started off actually as the Paris story in the script. And Drake plays really nicely against Donald Houston here. This the wonderful matching, as in with a lot of the episodes, where they choose the cast particularly well. And McGowan, I think, has probably got a little bit of influence in this. But his co-stars are always up to sparring with him. And there's some lovely little sparring scenes in this. One of the things that I particularly like about this episode is it takes us again into different territory. Yes, there is an espionage sort of storyline to it, but um, there are elements of gothic horror in this one. When we get the eventual reveal of this dead man with his mouth gaping behind the new mirror, taking us almost into sort of Jekyll and Hyde and Oscar Wilde picture Dorian Gray territory, even in the teaser with that wonderfully slightly seedy expensive hidden apartment that Donald Houston's character Edmund Bierce has got. I think it's very, very different from any other episode in the run. The teaser itself is wonderfully constructed because it plays with the viewer's expectation because when you first see Bierce, the Donald Houston character, he's sitting in the back of the apartment and he's in the half-light. So as a viewer, our perception is that anybody who's in the shadows is the shadowy figure. The teaser twists that on its head and makes it totally the opposite. And we expect post-teaser to go on to Drake. And in fact, we're back with Bierce and we don't know how much time he's lost and letters are going through the letterbox onto his head and the mm. silk scarf comes back. We've almost had a freeze frame and we've gone back to his story. And then when Drake eventually does come in, we've got one of those class things where Drake suggests to Sir Jeremy that might simply have defected and he says that simply isn't possible he was at Lansing and Cambridge <laughs> captain in the rifles DSO and bar and an impeccable record since he's been here at all these old boys club the set values that we've come to see and mistrust and Bierce's wife Virginia Bierce is pretty cold towards Drake as well there you say that as if to say you know my husband's not like that at all all of them are hinting that Bierce is not this He's not really a victim, is he? He's being blackmailed. Yes, he is on one level blackmailed, but basically he owes the guy money. I yeah. mean, he's been spending money he hasn't got to fuel this lifestyle of sex, rich food, triple life, because he's mm. got lovers all over the place in Paris, yeah. Germany, wherever. And he wasn't able or willing to pay the money back. There's a lot of ambiguity around Bierce, and this is one of Philip Broadley's brilliant touches in this episode, because we've got the two guys who are watching, as Drake watches him, there are two guys outside watching him. We get an episode between them and Drake, but we never understand, even at the end of the episode, we don't understand who they were or what they were doing. One of those is played by Frank Mayer, who obviously was McGowan's stunt double and seemed to follow around McGowan a lot with his career. Honorary mention here for Nicola Padgett, who is wonderful in this episode. 
I like the fact she's a bit ditzy as well. She only has like a little scene really with McGowan in the, in the scheme of things, but that is a really fantastic scene and part of the episode. You know, there's a real sort of chemistry going on between them and there are sparks flying there. It's another swinging 60s scene, isn't it? With her sort of PVC clothes and they sort of swap hats in front of the mirror. And when you bear in mind, Nicola Padgett was still a teenager when she made this episode. I mean, what screen presence has she got? We've talked in previous podcasts about the dissipated debutantes in the world of ITC. Nicola delivers the perfect line to summarise that. She says, I don't care what men do, only what reaction they have on me. Mm. Only that matters. It is a great scene between them, isn't it? They even had a little conversation about she likes champagne and brandy. Do you like it? And he says, yes, but separately. And they're just lovely little nuggets of dialogue. Fair Exchange is another one of those episodes that I think we all feel is in the top five. If we're going to say there's a top five. We've got a wonderful cast with Leela Goldoni, who's playing Lisa, James Maxwell, George McKell. We've got that thing as well where we are beginning to look at the Soviet bloc. We're looking at East Germany and we're referencing spy exchanges that were obviously going on in the real world. The relationship between Drake and Lisa is something that we should talk about, really, because it's hinted that they might have had a a relationship in the past. And it's quite poignant as well, because Drake gives Lisa his contact details and signs as John Schroeder, husband to Layla's alias. And when he leaves Lisa sat on the bed, she's sort of contemplating the circumstances, I think, that what might have been between them. It's kind of touching in a way, this episode. There's a brilliant teaser. It's a really well-constructed sequence. And it, to me, demonstrates where we are with Danger Man now because you've got a teaser that's four minutes long, virtually, and there's absolutely no dialogue. So there's that room to be cinematic again. It's one of those human consequences theme because you've got this girl who's basically had a breakdown from her treatment as being a spy, as being a captured spy. And she's developed this neurosis, this obsessiveness, uh, this, this need for revenge. It's what the world of 007 never really examines at this point. And we get to see a bit of a contrast between the personal Drake and the professional Drake in this story as well, which is what makes it so interesting for me. Yeah, this is one of the few um, episodes as well, written by Wilfred Greterex, who was the uh, script editor on the series. Um, He co-wrote this with Mark Brandel. And again, Charles Crichton directing. And like you say, that sequence at the start, the opening teaser all around the sort of streets of uh, the West End of London, that was so well done and so lovely to see out on location. And the ending is nothing short of brilliant. It's a really wonderfully ironic twist. It demonstrates to us again, Drake is left in a sticky situation because he's been betrayed. Mm. And then he he devises this wonderful false escape sequence, which leads to the Colonel's son pursuing him across the wire. And there's that lovely little wry end line when they exchange the Colonel's son for the girl. Drake says dryly, your daddy has been very worried about you. And I I love that, just that example of the character Drake thinking on his feet and getting out of that situation. 
that quote that Smudge has just given us, it reminds us that Drake is not only someone who uses his wits, he's also actually very witty. There's a lot of very clever, fun, dryly delivered humour. I think it's something that maybe Danger Man isn't always associated with, but re-watching a series, you're aware of actually how much humour there is in it. The episodes that Prisoner fans seem to be attracted to are Colony 3 and Ubiquitous Mr Lovegrove. Colony 3, I personally think, is a great episode. I'm not so enamoured by Lovegrove myself, personally, which we'll come on to. But Colony 3, I think, is a brilliantly set story. Drake going undercover again, this time as a sort of clerk at the Citizens Advice Bureau. I love all the little visual tricks in this one as well. When he's doing a crossword, the clues, it says detained bribe agent you know it's kind of like giving you little nudges as to what is going on here and there's the whole Mm. thing where he has to go on the train journey and suddenly the train journey goes all black and you don't know where they are and they arrive at this place wonderful locations used to create this model village or model town in england set behind the iron curtain A great story in the way that there is some tragedy involved in the character of Janet, who is played by Catherine Woodville. We've got Glyn Owen, who is playing Randall. He's gone out there, thinks he's going to be a really important person to the the new regime and is considered to be just another cog in the wheel, which really gets up his nose. He's really put out by Drake's character, especially where he sees him as a bit of a crawler up to the system. And Peter Arne as Richardson, this really nasty bit of work when he wants to be. And the torture scene with Drake is particularly good. All round, it's a wonderful episode. Lots and lots of plus points. I can see why Prisoner fans latch onto it because they think, oh, it's the village before the village. But I think they're being a bit blinkered there and overlooking a lot of things that go on in this episode. The thing with the the teaser when they pick up Fuller, who Drake is going to substitute for. I like the little bit of when they're interrogating Fuller. They do it via CCTV in Hobbs' office, which to me typifies the sort of nature of Drake's bosses. He has a hands-free option somebody else does the dirty work and he watches it remotely it's a little sort of voyeuristic element and it says to me how awful a character drake's boss really is it's an interesting concept in that the village is there to teach them attitudes and they're tuned in 24 7 to all of the inmates so that they can hear naturalistic conversation whatever they've got to become like the english and there's that wonderful bit of dialogue with peter on where he says the typical British attitudes, despise wealth, suck up to the wealthy, keep dogs in the house, but send your children out to boarding school. There's some really sort of nicely ironic dialogue. Drive on the left, politics on the right. On the right, Mm -hmm. yeah. The lovely lines Johnson comes up with about territorialism, geography is a matter of physical illusion, lines on a map, words on a signpost, brilliantly done little snippets Mm -hmm. of dialogue, and that's east-west microcosm. On the trivia note, there's the little thing about when the London bus turns up in the middle of the village. 
the two little topside adverts on the bus are actually for Hatfield and Stevenage, which tip the wink to the actual location. And I didn't mention that Niall McGuinness plays Donovan, who is the sort of head of the new town. Peter Arne is the sort of maitre d' of the village. He's the stepping stone. But the Niall McGuinness character has really become the average Englishman. Peter Arne was a bloody good actor. He really was. But there's an interesting interview I found in an old women's magazine from the 60s. I just came across it totally by chance. And there was a little interview with Peter Arne there saying that he didn't think he would be working with Patrick McGowan again because he perceived McGowan had a certain attitude to actors of his ilk, which is basically suggesting a touch of homophobia. That was a very interesting interview because they worked so well together. They really were sort of toe-to-toe in that interrogation scene. It might be that if there was some tension off-screen, that it actually added a free song to on-screen. But I mean, I think Peter Arne, who, as Smudge has quite rightly said, it was a superb actor. And I, I don't think there's a finer example of that than here, because there are so many memorable things about Colony 3, including this sort of strange post-war fake British so a new town. But I mean, I think Peter Arne is what we remember at the end of the episode. And on that return train journey, we know that this is his first sort of job as an operative. It's to bump off Drake. They're wonderful scenes there. And let's be honest, he doesn't really care much about Janet's character. I mean, even at the very end, when he's back with the Admiral, he just says, nothing we can do about the girl, I suppose. It's mm. quite casual. I think there are times when we see that John Drake understands that that's part of the job, that sometimes you have to be cold and detached. Going back to Drake and Janet, he doesn't really, really know much about her. He doesn't have that relationship to say he had with Susan Farmer's character in No Marks for Civility. So his relationship with her is quite distant in this. So perhaps that's why he doesn't really empathise very much with her. Love Grove, actually. I'm not such a fan, to be honest. I don't like dream episodes. I don't mind the direction and things like that, but I think it's a cop-out. For me... Yes, it is Danger Man, but in other ways it's not. And that's not me saying I want Danger Man to be the same every week. I don't mind if it veers off and goes off on tangents. But I'm just really not convinced with this. As an idea, it wasn't executed in the best way. Every time I watch it, I always feel let down by it. That's gone from the very first time I ever saw it on video years and years ago. To even the most recent viewing of this, again, I, I was open-minded. I thought, give it a chance. It might be better this time round. But to be honest, no. I would not put it anywhere near a top 20 episode at all. I think it's a showcase for David Stone's writing. David Stone was a particularly brilliant writer of dialogue. There is some absolutely sparkling dialogue in this. There are some wonderful characterizations and relationships, but it's not Danger Man. To me, it's one of the best five Danger Men, even of the 45. It fits in so well with that swinging 60s psychedelic feel. I love all the cultural references to Bond. Mm. I think the guest characters are great fun. 
if you're going to have an episode like that, there is no other option at the end other than to have it as a dream because mm-hmm. it's not a realistic episode. Of course, I wouldn't want Danger Men to do that every week, but uh, I think as a one-off. I mean, Eric Barker is absolutely sublime in it. He's such a good yeah. comic actor. And in fact, there is a parallel because Gideon's Way has a very, very playful episode in which Eric Barker plays a very, very light role. And it's an episode that's completely unlike any other Gideon's Way one. I think Love Grove is great fun as a one-off and one has to almost go with the journey. To give it its due, it is a very light-hearted break from the grittiness in itself, it's well constructed. And like I say, there's some wonderful dialogue stuff. Like when Drake says to Elaine, have you ever been spanked in the middle of the casino? And she responds, no, but I think I could get to like it. And there's mm-hmm. that wonderfully self-referential touch where Alexander is overturning the cards and all the cards about Drake are all the different missions that we've seen up to now. That's a really nice little sort of spoofy nod to the whole thing itself. If you accept it as a spoof, It works. It's a 007 spoof. It's a bit of lighthearted fun. In some ways, you're right there, Smudge, you know, like the sort of nods back to the previous episodes on the playing cards and the appearance of a Bond film tie-in paperback. They're all fun and stuff. I wouldn't agree necessarily on the psychedelia part being the 60s at the time because psychedelia didn't kick in till, you know, 1967, really. The whole Summer of Love thing. This is like end of 64, start of 65. And I don't think it's a vision of what's coming, like we predict that psychedelia is going to happen. The people in the parts play the parts well, like Adrienne Corrie and Francis DeWolf. I find Patsy Rowlands a bit irritating, but I suppose she's supposed to be a bit irritating. Peter Butterworth and obviously Mike Pratt's in there as well. I just don't think when people talk about Danger Man and they consider it to be this hugely classic series, which it is, This is not the representation that they should be thinking of because Uh it's so far removed from what Danger Man really is. If you've someone said to you, yeah, you've got to watch Danger Man. You've got to watch Love Grove. It's a fantastic episode. You watch it and you think, oh, the whole series is like this. It's not. It should be marked as one that spins off from the usual. It just grates with me. I'm on my own with Love Grove then. (laughs) But differences are good. You know, we can't be this podcast where everyone agrees on the same thing. A bit of friendly argument or disagreement is good. We always have, as I call them, a clunker. And I would say that the clunker episode for Danger Man, even though I've talked about high levels of writing and lighting and acting and consistently being good. The clunker for me in this batch of 22 is a man to be trusted, which I feel is kind of very slow. It's very, very talky. You're not quite sure what's going on really with a lot of the time is with it. I think Harvey Ashby is absolutely awful, as is his character, tedious. I think the plot doesn't work because when we find out eventually who the villain is, it really could have been any of them. And the expat characters, there isn't one of them we care about at all. I'd have been quite happy for them all to have been bumped off. I think it's shaky as an episode. 
But I think the only reason it really is shaky is because of that lead portrayal by Harvey Ashby. He's doing a very, very bad Lawrence Harvey impression, as far as I'm concerned. But if you stripped out that actor and got somebody else in, I think you'd possibly, arguably be in a position where you weren't finding a clunker in these 22. There's some good performances. The Ralph Michael performance is very, very good. Trisha Donahue's performance as Mrs. Gorlander is excellent. You get off on the wrong foot with the story because the guy's portrayal of the Banana Republic copper is just so caricatured, stereotypical. He doesn't really recover. But in the plot itself, it's not too bad, I think. Not the strongest screenplay written by Raymond Bowers. And I don't think the strongest direction either by Peter Maxwell. There are a few plus points. And again, you know, there's some decent roles for the women in this. Like you say, Patricia Donahoe and Wanda Ventham and Eunice Gason. I mean, I like the bit of the voodoo sequence. That was quite nice. And, you know, the saint touched on voodoo, did it quite differently, but sort of respectful in some ways. Wasn't putting it down. I do agree with you. I think the main point that I struggle with this is the Harvey Ashby character. I think this is the episode as well, if I remember rightly, where they were going to have the saint books as a reference in it but I think Charteris put a no on that which would have meant there would have been a sort of hint of being a saint and danger man sort of nod to each other in a sort of ITC way which is a shame it didn't happen because that would have been all right I mean there's that bit where he's on the floor where he's bound in the rope the guys have caught him and that and you think that was quite well done but again that's McGowan's part making that bit good I mean, the fundamentals of it, who you trust and who you don't trust, that is quite well constructed, really. I mean, yeah, the Merry Widows do obscure it a bit and drift it off a bit. My thought are, if you had somebody else playing the part, that might have been a slight, well, a considerably better episode. I suppose we should just briefly mention some of the other ones that we thought were great. From my notes, we've got Fish on the Hook. A really strong episode, got the most film noir lighting in the whole thing. Wonderful sequences all around Chuflix camera shot. Vladek Shebol, fantastic in it. Lovely, the actual operative, the fish, was a lady. Professionals we've got, which is, again, some lovely shots in that. There's a lovely shot with McGowan. Is a, got like a chair back to him, which is implying some prison bars. Uh, I've got a whole list here that just goes on and on. He's particularly talking about film shots. Colonel's daughter, where Drake meets the Indian head of police, and it's all dark, and he's in the back of the taxi, and he lights his cigarette and reveals who he is. So noir. Um, we got Galloping Major, two of us sorry. I mean, we haven't mentioned a date with Doris for Jane Merrow, which again, great performance by Jane. Battle of the Cameras, which was used to make the US title sequences. Dawn Adams in that, great. Such Men Are Dangerous. Room in the Basement with Jane Merrow again. The list is endless, but there's an interesting point about Room in the Basement. It's one of the few ITC spy shows where an actual country is named as the enemy, which I think is a bit odd because it's usually some sort of made up East mm-hmm. European name, isn't it? And they actually quote him 
as being held in a Romanian embassy. Don't nail him yet. Again, it's an episode that's got lots of lovely, quirky little bits in it. We've even got mm-hmm. a bit of mid-60s footage at a football ground. I think it's Craven Cottage, isn't it? Don't nail him yet. That's based on the actual true story of the Krugers, which was a spy story, a bit like Portland Spy Ring is another one that was used in an, another episode. So again, that we talked to about that right at the start. I mean, that's Philip Broadley referencing the real-world spy situations and then sort of adapting them into a Danger Man story, which I think is very, very interesting and clever. I think we should give a nod to Sylvia Sims. It's up to the lady. That is an absolutely wonderful Sylvia performance. And it demonstrates the character, again, a development or a noticeable thing in the character of Drake when they do the the sequence where Nikos is revealing the meeting place in the pack of cards. Drake is watching all the time and he sees the palpable relief on Sylvia's character. Nice bit of acting between the two of them. And I was just going to throw in there as well, two of us, sorry, Francesca Annis again, but also again, that the writers weren't afraid to revisit ideas they'd done in a 25 minute series, because that's basically mm-hmm. the gallows tree sort of expanded and adapted. <laughs> One thing that is great about the Danger Man one-hour episodes, and this is a continuation of something that started in the half-hour episodes, is the use of gadgets and how inventive the writers and production team were in the use of these gadgets. Now, obviously, at the time, Bond mania and the spy craze was really beginning to sort of kick off, you know, and you had his Aston Martin first seen in Goldfinger with the ejector seat and the machine guns and revolving number plates and all of that. But obviously Danger Man in the half hour series had sort of kicked off some of those gadgets. But here we get some fabulous little ideas going on. You know, we get everything from his tape recorder in his shaver. And there are so many. It's not like every episode has got one, but it does seem to be every other week that let's have some fun with a little sequence of how we're going to use these gadgets and what they're going to do. I just think that in some ways that adds a little bit of fun to the series, but also that that was what was going on in the real world in espionage. I mean, the ultimate episode for this has got to be Such Men Are Dangerous when they're doing that assassination training course. You've got the plant pot bomb, a bike pump gun, plumb line garrote, and even as far as a rocket launcher. But Drake himself employs so many gadgets. We see him episode after episode, and his cover story is as a journalist. But really, he carries so many gizmos with him. His cover story should have been traveller and electrical goods. I just think that it must have been great fun if you were a writer on this and you you were able to get a little gadget into an episode and see what the guys came up with. Well, you mentioned such men are dangerous. And of course, some of the gadgets there are delivered by a butcher's van. McGowan also had his little mini, which I think is a 60s pop culture icon. It's not like Bond's Aston Martin all showy. This is like the most common garden cars. It could blend into the background, a bit like McGowan's character. If he needed to, he can go undercover and change his role. I think the thing that really sort of sums that up is that title sequence we use when we see the mini zooming around London. It is the Drake character. It can cut in quickly, get the job done, zoom out again. 
Well, McGowan described it as unostentatious, and in many ways that suits Drake's character. And of course, this was networked in primetime in America on CBS and a big, big hit over there and a big hit in Europe, where in France it was called Destination Danger and in Australia and all over Europe, which led to a number of items. If you're a collector, paperback novelizations, both in English and published in America, but also published in Spain, in France, in Portugal, Israel, Germany, the Netherlands. Culturally, Danger Man was a big hit for ITC. We talked earlier about Lou needing Patrick to sort of give ITC a bit of a boost, and I think it really did. But I also think in terms of the tie-in merchandise, it really gave them a, a bit of an insight into what they could do moving forward. As I say, we've only covered the first 22. Some we've talked about in great detail. Others we've sort of just given nods to. But I, I would say if you get the chance to rewatch them, they're definitely worth a rewatch. And if you want to continue on with more than the 22 and you're really enjoying it, I would tell you to do that. We'll come back on another podcast and look at those remaining episodes that we haven't covered here. But that's some way off. But I think that Danger Man is one of the most consistent ITC action and adventure shows. We've talked about the quality and we've talked about the standard being particularly high with only one real clunker. Generally, I think we all agree that it's up there. And I think a lot of that is to do with not only Patrick McGoon himself, but also Ralph Smart's team that he assembled and that the fact that he gave them free reign. He allowed his script writers to be very free in their, in, in their outlooks and what they were writing about. But also he was sort of hands off with his producer in Sydney Cole and Ada Young and let them really run the show. In summing up, I'd go even one step further and say not one of the most, I think it probably is the most consistent ITC show, because whereas with something like The Saint, it reaches an artistic pinnacle. I think you once compared it to The Beatles, and then it drops. This show doesn't really have an artistic pinnacle. It, it carries on reaching and reaching. And when you consider that the last one is Not So Jolly Roger, which many people consider to be one of the great ones, that consistency is quite incredible. And ultimately, an awful lot of it is down to McGowan because I think he's even more magnetic than Roger Moore was as the saint. I mean, they're very different shows. I don't want to compare them, but I think it doesn't get much better than McGowan as Drake. I would end on the controversial comment that I think, had it not been for a prisoner, Danger Man would be even more highly lauded I think for some people, it's almost like a precursor or warming up for The Prisoner. It's not. It's a brilliant show in its own right. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. You've got to take it on its own merits. They assembled a wonderful team, as Jazz has said, a consistent team. There was a high quality standard. If you strip out these episodes, there is so much in them to see. But the biggest boost, as far as I'm concerned, I think, is, is the fact that they stayed with monochrome. As you say, it suits the use of black and white so much more than colour. I still think, to this day, it's a far, far superior series to The Prisoner. It was lovely to be able to chat with you guys again. It's been a while, but now we are back on podcast with season two of ITC Entertain the World. 
We'll be doing another podcast in the near future featuring a ghostly character. Thanks ever so much for being part of this, Rodney and Smudge. Pleasure. Thanks as always, Jess. Good fun. Thank you very much. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast, Danger Man 50 Minutes, with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall, and Al Smudge. It was a Bitter and Twisted Limited production for the morning after.